Welcome back to the show. Hope you don't mind, we took a little hiatus shortly after the Toronto election. But no worries, we can jump right back into it. It really shouldn't be that hard. Boy, um, all right, so, uh, what did we miss? Well, Doug Ford passed legislation called the More Homes Built Faster Act to open up protected land known as the Greenbelt and end development charges Ontario City say will mean millions in missing revenue. Plans for the reimagined Ontario place emerged, including a giant parking garage paid for with public dollars, a 13-story for-profit spa, and a water park the Globe and Mail's architecture critic Alex Bozakovic says would be the, quote, worst building in Toronto. Early construction started on the Ontario Line subway. Great. And that turns out to involve cutting down a massive amount of mature trees all along the planned line and nobody in Toronto seemed to know about it until it was too late. Not great. Still in Toronto, the recently elected council and Mayor John Tory with the brand new strong mayor powers he got from the Premier started to debate the budget. Journalists from the Narwhal and Toronto Star discovered some developers had bought the Greenbelt land Doug Ford just made available only months before the legislation to open that land passed. Seems sketchy? The Ontario Provincial Police think so, and they're currently trying to decide if they need to launch an investigation. <sighs> Also, journalists discovered developers, some with ties to the Greenbelt, were invited to Doug Ford's daughter's stag and doe party and encouraged to spend a bunch of money. But it's fine, Doug Ford said, because the developers are his very good friends. Good? Who cares? Because it turns out Toronto Mayor John Tory was having an affair with a female employee half his age throughout the pandemic and then he resigned. But only after passing his strong mayor city budget, which gave even more money to the already overfunded police and relies on a billion dollar bailout from the province and the feds, which hasn't been committed yet. <laughs> anyway, now Toronto has no mayor, Ontario Place is going to be a privatized spa, the green belt has been handed over to developer friends of Doug Ford's, and I have a headache. This is Spacing Radio. Casting from the future site of the Moss Park subway station, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, co-founder of the advocacy group Ontario Place for All, Norm De Pasquale, tells us about the fight to stop Doug Ford's plans to change the aging public landmark into a privatized playground. But first, Emma McIntosh, Ontario reporter with the Narwhal, tells us all about the new Greenbelt rules, what it means for the environment, who stands to benefit and what we all stand to lose. Stand by. Emma, thank you so much for joining me. I I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with the green belt, but uh, what that means has changed pretty dramatically in the last couple of months, and, and you've been following those changes. Uh, so what are the changes that have happened with the Ford government, and uh, where do we stand now? Well, for a really long time, developers, or some developers at least, were pushing to develop the green belt, and successive governments would just say no. 
But in November, Doug Ford, himself, who has himself promised not to develop the Greenbelt, went back on his own promise and announced the government would open up 7,400 acres of Greenbelt land. And it's kind of split up into these 15 little sections all throughout the GTA. Now, in exchange, they said that they would add 9,400 acres back in elsewhere. Slight problem with that is that that land was already protected through all these other mechanisms. So yes, it's important, but it wasn't going to be developed anyway. And so we're not really gaining much there in the way of protected land. So the net effect really is that we've lost 7,400 acres of Greenbelt. Now, the government has said that if it's not developed by 2025, it will return that land to the Greenbelt. But I was reading the regulations this week and... There's actually nothing in the law that they put in that says that. So I don't know if we necessarily have a guarantee that that'll happen anyway. It sounds like it could be like the guarantee that we received that he, he wouldn't touch the green belt. It, it might be. It might be along those lines. Right. <laughs> the other thing is that, like, it's going to be pretty hard to beat that deadline. You know, in the world of development, as I'm sure your listeners know, two years goes by pretty darn fast. Mm -hmm. And especially since a lot of this land was never even serviced because it's been in the green belt for 20 years, it's going to be a real challenge to see if that deadline can actually be met. The land in question, uh, what are we talking about? Are we, are we talking about, uh, you know, untouched habitats, farmland, a mix of both? It's a bit of a mixed bag. The government has said that it picked these pieces of the green belt by looking at stuff that was on the edges of existing development or on the edges of the green belt, stuff that could really easily be hooked up to municipal services or maybe stuff that was hooked up already. But I think if we look a little closer, that's not exactly true in every case. You know, if we look at like, there's this big, uh, big chunk of the green belt that was just open called the Duffins Rouge Agricultural Preserve. Now, yeah, like, some pieces on the outside of the agricultural preserve are closer to other development, but stuff in the middle of it is like nowhere near anything else. And that's a pretty intact habitat. It's actually one of the last remaining uh, wildlife corridors between Lake Ontario and this ridge to the north called the Oak Ridges Moraine. So it's a pretty important habitat corridor and it's a place for water to pass through like that's a pretty important thing for habitat connectivity. It's also right next to Rouge Park, which is a national park. And so in other cases, like it's kind of exactly what the government described, maybe these lots that are surrounded by suburbs already. Another thing that you'd want to consider, though, is that even the edges of the Greenbelt are important in their own way, right? Like it might not be the densest forest where you're going to find like amazing birds and a ton of like wildlife going on. But those lands still provide a buffer for other areas of the Greenbelt. You know, for instance, like there's some types of species that can only live in deep forests. So even if you're not chipping away at their core habitat, you might be chipping away at like the buffer zone that they need, if that makes sense. Right. So there's, there's a lot to consider there. And what I would love to see is the government's exact planning rationale for, for whether it looked at those issues before it decided to take these out of the Greenbelt. Right. And, and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, which parcels of land are serviceable or not. What have been the, the different municipalities who this land kind of is in their jurisdiction? What have been their responses? Because I, I think I've seen that the, some municipalities are saying, well, who's going to pay to, you know, bring the, the you know, all, all the infrastructure out here uh, to, to service these new developments? 
Yeah, that's definitely been a problem for some of them. Um, I know in Durham region, where councillors have said they do not want this to happen, that's where the Duffin Rouge Agricultural Preserve is. You know, there's those questions because another related issue is that the government has also passed uh, some legislation that limits how much they can collect in development fees, which is already punching a huge hole in municipal budgets. So yeah, how they're going to pay for what they would normally pay for, let alone like other servicing that they weren't planning for in the first place. That's very much an open question. It's going to be an interesting couple of years around here, I think. I've also seen some concern that if uh, some of this land was developed, that uh, you do run into potential issues with uh, flooding, that kind of thing, that they're, they're built on watersheds, that sort of thing. Is that a concern looking into the future? Yeah, it is a concern. And I think that sometimes what we imagine is that like people would be building right up against creeks or like right on those protected waterways or floodplain. But it's actually kind of more like nuanced than that too, you know? And if we get into the weeds on it, you can think of um, water like flowing over pavement, right? It, it kind of pools on the surface. It goes down wherever there's like a slope, but it doesn't sink into the ground. When rain falls on like a natural surface, you know, like a farmer's field or like a forest floor, the ground absorbs it. And so that's like this honestly incredible little bit of flood mitigating capacity that the natural world just already has. The problem is that in Southern Ontario, we've already paved a lot. And we've also lost a lot of wetlands, which are really, really good at absorbing water. And so the result is that we just kind of have more problems with flooding everywhere than, than we did before. And that kind of ties into the Greenbelt issue because part of the rationale for the Greenbelt is that we need this green space, right? We don't know exactly when we're going to like hit that piece of straw that's going to break the donkey's back. We don't know if we, you know, build this here or take this out there, whether those things are going to be enough to tip us into worsened flood problems. We'll find that out when our basements are full of water. You right. know? <laughs> These are things that could happen years down the line. And it'll be hard to connect them back. It's just kind of a, a broader trend, um, especially with climate change, when flooding is expected to get more frequent and more intense. So one thing that I just learned about this that, that has shaken me deeply is that it's not just the houses on the floodplain um, that will suffer, right? When that floodplain is uh, already filled up, it's the houses in the surrounding neighborhoods too, when that water has nowhere else to go. And I'm not trying to say like, oh, like if we build on these parts of the green belt, it's gonna increase flooding everywhere else. But I think it's important to note that that's a risk and that the government, when we've asked them to explain how they know that that won't happen, they have not answered. Right. And uh, for one of your stories, you, you spoke to one of the architects of the Green Belt, uh, the original legislation, who said that uh, the problem with this isn't just, you know, these parcels of land, but it's kind of a slippery slope where if you open that door, it's hard to close it. It's a sort of foot in the door thing where, well, once your foot's in the door, you might as well swing it wide open. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're already seeing this. Municipal councillors are telling us that, that they're already getting more requests to open the Green Belt. Those never really like stopped over the last 20 years, but there's certainly been more of them. And that provincial planner you talked about, Victor Doyle, 
one of the things that he's told me is that a, a big worry is that over time, the Greenbelt will kind of migrate. Like if you imagine us chipping away at the southern edge that's closest to Toronto and Hamilton, or that like that inner edge, and then adding land on the outside of it further away, it kind of moves over time, right? And like, I've, I've run into some people who think that there's nothing really wrong with that, right? Like up north, there is more open land. Wouldn't it make sense to protect more up there and use the land down here where there's demand for it? I get where they're coming from, but I think it's important to remember that, like, first of all, we need that green space to protect us from flooding. We also need it to produce food around here. The last couple of years have really showed us what happens when our supply chain breaks down and we don't have the ability to get the things we need close to us. But also that like the Greenbelt boundaries were designed intentionally. There might've been little mistakes here and there. And the government did like a, a review of those mistakes back in 2017 and fixed some of them. But, but broadly speaking, like this thing has been argued about a lot. <laughs> like at this point, I think there are some who would argue that they've discussed all they need to discuss that, you know, people have had the chance to make their case and the green belt should just be the green belt because these are the things that we intentionally wanted to protect. It's a really interesting debate. And proponents of this change would say that uh, this is about housing and where we have a housing crisis in Ontario and pretty much nationwide. And that uh, what matters is, is just building as much housing as fast as possible. But from where I sit in Toronto, when I look at the vast swaths of, of urban geography that are specifically zoned uh, for what they call stable stable neighborhoods, uh, you know, very underdeveloped, single single detached uh, family homes that don't really reflect the modern lifestyle, and you know, there's certainly been a lot of documentation that say these neighborhoods are not working and uh, could be made to uh, integrate more uh, more newcomers, uh, you know, this big boom of, of uh, people that we're expecting. I think my, my counter to that would be, why not build there? Like, And I think the answer might just be that uh, this is, well, partially the answer is that uh, it's just easier to go into these greenbelt spaces rather than, uh, you know, try and navigate uh, the local politics around the what they call the yellow belt and the the stable neighborhoods is that kind of what you're seeing as well that's part of it but i think another reason why a lot of the time developers propose stuff for protected land like the green belt is that they can buy it at bargain basement prices like i mean think of it like you're buying a house that's been condemned you know it's like no one else wants that if you can't really do anything with it and so um, you know, a lot of developers bought up farmland in the Greenbelt at these really cheap prices, anticipating that one day they would be able to get it removed and then make a ton of money. Like once it's removed from the Greenbelt, its value goes up a lot. So that's like a very juicy opportunity. And, you know, I don't think developers are doing anything wrong or illegal. That's how our, our system is designed. They're using it in a way that... Um, that perhaps like environmentalists don't like, but they're within their rights to try. But yeah, I think that's like maybe an overlooked reason for why this stuff happens a lot of the time is just because, well, it's a way that they can make a lot of money, you know, probably more money than they could like doing infill or like laneway suites. Well, since you bring it up, I, I think the thing that almost anyone in Ontario at this point would have heard about uh, is uh, based off work that you and your colleagues did which said that some of those developers bought a lot of the land that recently became available for development 
quite recently, uh, as recently as uh, since the Ford government was first elected in 2018, and, and uh, perhaps even more recently than that. Yeah, that that did happen. Um, <laughs> so what we found when we looked at these like 7,400 acres, and what was actually in there was that a bunch of that land had been snapped up within the last four years. And what happened four years ago? Well, in early 2018, Doug Ford, who was not yet the premier, was caught on tape at this event, pitching the idea of opening up the Greenbelt. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have heard that tape. It's like all over YouTube. It was everywhere during that year's election where Doug said, you know, I think we'll open up part of the Greenbelt. It's a great idea. It was given to me by these developers. They're going to fix the housing crisis, yada, yada. Now, when this comes out, everyone got really, really mad. And that's when Ford made his promise to not ever do that. But since that moment, you know, a bunch of developers bought land that was partially or completely undevelopable and paid a, a pretty penny for it. The most recent one that we found was actually bought for tens of millions of dollars just like six weeks before Doug Ford announced that he would be willing to open up the green belt. And it was in one of those sections that was going to be opened. I think for a lot of people that raised the question, you know, did these developers know or was there some degree of coordination between the Ford government and developers on this. You know, it's also of note that a lot of the developers that we looked at have other connections to the Ford government. Um, you may have heard reporting last week about a stag and doe for the premier's daughter. Well, one of the developers who was at that stag and doe, who the premier has said is a personal friend, runs Flato Developments, a company that benefited from this Greenbelt land swap among, you know, other government policies as well. And, you know, in some ways it's more subtle. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of these developers have donated money to the progressive conservatives over the years, uh, significant sums of money, or they've hired lobbyists to talk to the government on behalf, people who have close ties to the party already as well. I think the overall picture there is one that just looks cozy in some ways, you know, where developer interests end up being represented in policy as environmental protection goes by the wayside. And man, since that came out, <laughs> have things ever gotten weird around here? Um, <laughs> you know, the integrity commissioner is investigating, so is the auditor general, and the OPP have even said they're considering looking into it as well. And I think that'll be a story that we'll end up following for at least a year, maybe more around here. Right. Regarding the OPP, uh, on what grounds would they per pursue uh, an investigation? We don't exactly know. We know that the the branch that they have looking at this right now is the, the branch that looks at like anti-racketeering, so organized crime and stuff. I think the idea would be that if these developers had inside knowledge that, you know, the people selling the land didn't have, that that could be some sort of fraud. But that's kind of speculation on my part because the police have not exactly said what they're doing. I understand, though, that pretty much every reporter in Ontario is calling them like at least once a week. So <laughs> if they ever do launch an investigation, we'll know. I bet. And and yeah, we, we don't want to be libellious uh, or, <laughs> and uh, I don't want you to spoil whatever you're, you're currently working on. There's also a, a sort of a federal government uh, possibility that they'll get involved. What would that look like? It, not that I'm saying that I think they would, but 
some people are saying that there is an avenue if the Trudeau government wanted to uh, intervene, that uh, they have some grounds to do so. Oh, yeah. The uh, the federal environment minister, Stephen Guibault, has made it pretty clear, actually, that he is willing to intervene at this point. And there's actually a little bit of precedent for this. So first, I guess I'll explain how he could do it. Sure. So there, there's kind of a couple ways. The first one is, I know I'm going to read the names of legislation and it's going to sound so boring, but just stick me like 10 seconds. It'll be interesting again. Please. So the Impact Assessment Act is a piece of federal law that the, uh, the, the liberals up in the federal government have used to intervene on Highway 413 already. Um, and, and basically how that works is a citizen will request that the Impact Assessment Agency step in the impact assessment agency takes a little look at it and then the environment minister decides whether he's going to intervene. So it's kind of this roundabout thing, but that did happen with highway 413, which is this four government project that would go through the green belt. The environment minister found that it would, you know, warrant a little bit of an extra review. And that's basically paused that project for like two years. Like it has not really moved forward very much and it can't until the federal government gives the okay. And they haven't even gotten to the stage of like actually checking anything yet. Like they're just at the the preliminary setting things up stage for two years. So if something like that were to happen for an individual project that gets proposed in the green belt, that's pretty rough. Like that would delay it by a lot. That whole 2025 thing basically goes out the window. And so Minister Gibo has said that's one thing that he might be willing to do if it works out that way and citizens make a request. Another thing he can do is just use endangered species law. So he actually did this in Quebec once um, on a housing development that affected an endangered frog, uh, a federally protected frog. He issued a stop work order on that. And Gibo has said that he's willing to do that as well if there's anything on former Greenbelt land that includes, you know, an effect on a federally endangered species. So, like, that wouldn't be able to apply to every single project, most likely. But it does mean kind of two things. Number one, every developer who's pitching stuff for this land now knows that it's going to be risky, that it might not get done on time or (laughs) as cheaply, perhaps, as they thought they could. And they also know that this is going to be messy. Like every single time one of these things gets proposed, people are going to be fighting over it. Someone might make a request to the impact assessment agency and it'll go a lot slower just because of that. And uh, even if the minister never actually uses those powers, it, it sets an interesting stage, I guess, for, for a bit of a, an intergovernmental showdown there. In terms of the immediate future, you know what, what's happening with this legislation. Uh, I don't even know has has it received royal assent or is it still uh, being uh, put before uh, Queens Park? The the changes to the green belt they were finalized in December when most of us were busy at holiday parties right. and finishing up our Christmas shopping. So they've officially gone through, but we still don't know exactly what will be built on those spots. So that's really the thing that I think we're watching now is, you know, what are developers going to propose? What are cities maybe going to get behind? And that'll really define where this goes next. Well, Emma, people can read your work in the Narwhal. Uh, I recommend they do. And uh, on social media, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Emma MCI, but please be nice to me. (laughs) 
<laughs> Y'all better be nice to her. All right. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Thanks for having me. Big fan of spacing. Now, Ontario Place on Toronto's waterfront is iconic. It was born out of centennial pride, and people old enough to have experienced its heyday have fond memories about it. Today, a lot of it is in disrepair, but much of it is still frequented by visitors who take advantage of its legendary landscape architecture, its green spaces, and its access to the lakefront. Now, all of that is threatened by private interests subsidized by public tax dollars. Ontario Place for All co-founder Norm De Pasquale breaks it down. So Norm, we might as well begin by talking about uh, the group Ontario Place for All. Uh, what is that exactly? Uh, how, how did you come to be? Sure. So uh, the group was founded uh, in 2019. We're just um, we're a group of concerned residents with various expertises, but uh, we were founded in 2019 to respond to the Ontario government basically saying, you know, it's okay for us to clear cut Ontario Place entirely. Like there's nothing worth saving there. So that's when the group formed to resist that plan. And uh, we've had some successes in saving things like the Cinesphere, uh, the Pods, and Trillium Park so far. And uh, now we are faced with, uh, you know, kind of a scandal of epic proportions with uh, the private spa that wants to take over much of Ontario Place. Yeah, I I mean, I think most people can agree that um, the Ontario Place, as it's been for the last, um, I guess, almost two decades now, it does need some TLC. But uh, what exactly is being proposed by the provincial government? Yeah, I don't think anybody would argue that, but the, the provincial government right now is proposing uh, through basically a pro- an RFP, which we can't see any details about. The winner of that RFP is uh, Therme, an Austrian spa developer who wants to put down a spa franchise, which will basically absorb the entire West Island of Ontario Place. So, you know, taking up much of Ontario Place and leaving us with a six meter sliver of space around that spa which people can quote unquote enjoy. And, you know, you're going to feel kind of like you're walking uh, on the peripheral of Ripley's aquarium. You know, you're going to be in this six meter sliver with this kind of building dominating your view uh, as you go on to West Island. Right. And, and this is very much a, a for-profit venture, um, but with, with provincial money going into it, taxpayer money. Yeah. Lots of taxpayer money. I mean, you know, this is why I'm saying this is evolving into a scandal of massive proportions. Like we're, we're talking about at this point, $200 million for site serv- servicing to get it up to the standard where the spa can run. And then $450 million of taxpayer money for an underground parking lot, you know, which will end up costing each Ontarian $40 plus per Ontarian. So absolutely at this point, I, in my mind, we're at a scandal. Well, I, I I don't know if I personally can say the S word, uh, but <laughs> but it it does raise the question for me. For, for example, uh, you know, if if uh, the people of Ontario and, and Toronto are going to see, uh, you know, the any of the profits that are raised by this, and if if not, uh, then at the very least, wh- why not sell this uh, sell this land to a, a company like Therme um, for the highest possible cost? What, what are you hearing from the province that is this uh, supposed benefit to the, the taxpayer and, and to Torontonians? 
Great question. And, and this is why I call it a scandal. Like we're not allowed to see anything. We're not allowed to see the details of the lease. We're not allowed to see the other bidders who were unsuccessful. We have no way as Ontarians to evaluate whether or not we're getting a good deal. So what we can do is look on the face of it saying that we're spending $650 million so that we can ultimately pay to enter into a private spot at the end of it. So it, it does not sound like a great deal on its face. And the Ontario government does not want to share any information that would help us evaluate otherwise. Right. And obviously, I, you know, I'm just, just floating the question. I, I don't think a lot of people do want to see the land sold off because e- even if at its most, um, you know, defunct, it, it's still a, a beautiful sprawling landscape. It, it does have, uh, you know, bike trails and it, it does have the fairly new, you know, Trillium Park right there, access to the waterfront. Uh, which you know, uh, other parts of uh, along the waterfront we don't have. Um, c- certainly not without barriers. So uh, you know what? What is the counter proposal? I mean, I, I see a, a lot of energy around this uh, to to not keep it the way it always was, but uh, maybe maybe keep what what makes it special and expand that instead. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, Bill Davis, I think, put it well, which was saying that public interest, not commercial interest, must drive the vision of Ontario Place. Um, if you start with more of a public mindset, of a consultative mindset, and and you know, uh, thinking about making a beautiful public space, and then you know, dotting in some commercial with that, I, I think you'll have success. But anytime you think of Ontario Place as as a money maker for the province, that's when things go very wrong with this site. Um, you know, Trillium Park was the cost of about thirty million dollars, and and is just well loved. And you know, these public spaces can last for you know thirty, forty, fifty years if done right. It's a good public investment in parkland that we are just dying for in downtown Toronto. And in keeping with the original vision of giving, um, you know, an equitable backyard to every Ontarian and a place where they can see themselves reflected, like, you know, just against any of these lenses, the spa is just wrong. Like we're, we're talking about a spa that would make Ontario Place into any place. Like that spot could go anywhere. Why does it have to go in Ontario Place, a, a public space that's supposed to reflect Ontarians and be like our, our, our service, sort of our backyard? So um, this is what happens when you build things and you don't consult public first. I know the argument from from Therme and, and from the province is that this will reanimate the space and and will become uh, an international attraction. I can agree that the the space could use some programming. Mm-hmm. It's not unused, however. Uh, we talked about, you know, the parks and trails and the fire pits uh, have become popular, especially during the pandemic. Um, there's been work ongoing in that area in terms of labeling the the different species of trees. There, I know, was a a recent project that was undertaken. But I also wonder, people do come to Toronto, and and like you say, this this isn't uh, this doesn't strike me as a project that is quintessentially Torontonian. Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. Like, a, you know, these Thermae franchise spas, like the McDonald's of spas, if you will, they tend to be in industrial areas in other cities um, where you have ample parking, um, you know, hence the need for this underground parking lot. Nothing about this says Toronto or Ontario. And, and I would say that, you know, sure, yes, we, we do need to revitalize Ontario Place. And, um, you know, Toronto actually did some consultations that said people would be, you know, good with some things like, you know, some some commercial options within it. Like, let's say something like in the Montreal waterfront where you have canisters and you have vendors se- selling various things. And, and there's some small indoor places you can go to to take in various activities. But just, you know, 
it's hard to accept something that will dominate basically the entire West Island um, and, and and not you know and not an option that every Ontarian can enjoy just just due to the sheer cost of going and and this thing that just doesn't reflect Ontario as well it just feels like the wrong fit for this space and uh, you know on my mind right now while we're talking about the building of the Ontario Line subway. There's a lot of debate about uh, the fate of a certain amount of trees in front of the Osgood Law Society. Um, already cut down has been uh, about 60 uh, mature trees in Moss Park. For the Ontario plans, we're we're talking about something upwards of uh, over 800, cl- closer to 900, if if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they basically have to clear cut the entire West Island. So bye-bye trees, goodbye vegetation, goodbye animal habitats. And and these trees, like according to the Arborist report in the development application, they are pretty healthy trees by and large, and they're 50 years old. So, you know, it, you can't just replace them by planting a new tree because these are mature trees doing the job that they need to do to help us fight climate change. Um, so, you know, people got went to Osgood Hall to save, I guess, dozens of trees. And, and I really hope people are just as concerned about the 850 trees we stand to lose at this site, along with all of the other vegetation and a lot of the things that the original landscape architect Michael Huff did to to make this site special and reflect Ontario, like these aren't just any trees; they are, you know, native Ontario trees. And you know, he was planting certain little forests in there that would reflect parts of Ontario. So, you know, replacing something very thoughtful with something I would say is fairly thoughtless. Michael Huff, for listeners who may not know, is a celebrated landscape architect, kind of a pioneer in the field. Yes, that's right. I mean, um, him and Eb Zeidler, um, you know, created something very beautiful in Ontario Place, which is recognized as a world monument. So it's a mix of, you know, modernist architecture when we think of the Cinesphere and the Pods, and then, you know, landscape architecture with Michael Huff that reflects um, Ontario. Um, and, and together, this is something, you know, unique in the world. So it's recognized by the World Monument Fund. Now, if I understand, uh, the province hopes to break ground in 2024. The city has currently got to sort of review the recommendations or the proposal itself and come back to the province. Um, are you hearing anything about how it's being received at the city, uh, either politically or, or in the planning departments? And uh, I imagine you are you are trying to be in the ear, uh, you know, Ontario for all, trying to be in the <laughs> ear of anyone who, who may, uh, may be able to stand up to this uh, proposal as it stands. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the province has agreed to go through the development application process that's at the city. And, you know, Mayor Tory has spoken out on radio stations and things about the underground parking lot and questions like, what is that? Why do we need that? Mm-hmm. Um, although he hasn't really spoken out much about the plan in general. And, and you know, I do I do tend to agree with his stance that, you know, we, we need spaces we can enjoy in all four seasons and maybe some small indoor spaces could work. But, um, you know, we, we are we are working right now in the strategic advisory committee with the city just to try to steer this development application the right way. Like what I'm hoping is councillors will recognize, really, we need a reset on this site because, you know, what what is being planned here with the kind of commercial interest driving everything? It, it's just wrong. Right. When I think of Ontario Place, uh, it, it it's sort of that uh, one of the many things that came out of this period of excitement across Canada, this sort of post-war, we've come, in, come into our own as a country. It was a little bit corny, but also just, you know, charmingly optimistic. Uh, what what does Ontario Place mean to you, and, and what do you think it could be in the future? Yeah, like uh, Ontario Place, when it was built in 1971, it felt a bit like a response uh, to the uh, Expo 67 in Montreal, mm-hmm. and 
giving Ontarians a special place where they can reflect and, and um, think about what it is to be Ontarian and think about the future of Ontario and um, really kind of see themselves re reflected in this place. And, and, and I think that's an amazing vision, like a place that is uniquely Ontarian that really kind of reflects the whole province. Like the, there's bits of Ontario places, West Island that reflect Northern Ontario as well. And, you know, not every Ontarian gets to go to Northern Ontario. So this is a place where we can go to see, uh, you know, everything that's special about our province. And I think that's really special and really unique and, and something we really need to hang on to. Like it's recognized globally as something very unique and special. So I, I think we, we can't lose sight of that vision uh, of building a, a place that helps Ontarians to to learn and grow and dream uh, about a, a future more utopian Ontario, perhaps even. I think that's very special and we have to hang on to that. And in terms of advocacy, what comes next, uh, especially for Ontario Place for All? Yeah, so we have to work very hard to spread the message out there. Like, you know, I'm still talking to parents when I'm, I'm picking up my kids and, they, they, you know, they, I'm telling them Ontario Place is, you know, much of it's going to turn to a spa and they're, they're shocked. So we have to do our job of spreading the message far and wide so that we have a, a lot of people resisting. So far, we've got to 8,000 people to sign our letter of concern, but uh, we have to grow much bigger than that if we're, if we're going to win this fight, which is really a province-wide fight. You know, we have people like Friends of the Golden Horseshoe who've written a letter in support. And, and, and this, this fight has to grow all across Ontario and wake up all Ontarians to, you know, get, wake up and defend this space that, that is uniquely ours. Um, you know, unfortunately, that we stand to lose if we are complacent. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your best developer friends, your Ontario Place Winter Swimming Group, and the Ontario Provincial Police. If you have a moment, give us a rating on iTunes and help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all one word. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can tweet at us at spacingradio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. And keep your eyes out for the latest issue of the magazine, all about the Ontario line, which will hit shelves soon. In the meantime... This has been episode 69. Nice.